Good morning. Before we get in the lesson, it's my joy to make a couple of introductions. Some families that want this to be their church home. First, I want to introduce Andrew and Stacy Meadows. Um, they are pictures on the screen. Y'all mind standing where you are? Gave us a wave. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about them. Andrew grew up in Mount Juliet. He went to Harding, majored in business, now works in insurance. Stacy grew up in Alaska. Uh, she also went to Harding, but they met in a Bible class at the Harpeth Hills Church in Nashville. But they built a house here in Columbia to be near family. And that brings me to the next family. Stacy's sister is Amanda. So let me introduce Ben and Amanda Corn. Y'all mind standing? <clears throat> let me tell you a little bit about them. Ben is the son of John and Karen Corn. Uh, he's a graduate of Lipscomb University. He's an engineer. Amanda grew up also in Alaska. Uh, she's a graduate of Harding. She's got a business degree. They connected uh, on a mission trip to Mexico. Uh, John Wyatt is three, and everybody knows and loves Mia. She's one. Uh, they've also built a, a home here in Columbia. Uh, again, Amanda and Stacy are sisters. Their parents are Steve and Becky Foster. And they've been visiting with us, too. Um, they still live in Alaska about half the year. They're living here. They built this compound. I, I, I kidded them. I called it the Kennedy compound. You know, you got to be family to get on there. Uh, but we're so glad that they are now part of our church family. So introduce yourself. Uh, get to know them. Just wonderful, wonderful people. <clears throat> we're continuing our study. And today we're going to be in Mark chapter 12. Let me encourage you to open your Bible there if you're a guest with us. We're just walking through the last week of Jesus' life and just noticing how he handled all the stress. A boss called in a stubborn employee who had refused to participate in the company's insurance program, and their particular pension program required 100% participation. Young man, the boss said, I understand that you believe our new policy is ill-advised and have chosen not to participate. That is your prerogative, he said, but let me tell you that you are no longer employed by this company and you can pick up your paycheck on the way out. The stunned employee said, sir, you are mistaken. I am glad to participate in the program. I did not used to think it was a good idea, but no one explained it to me as well as you just did. <laughs> it is difficult to maintain your convictions when you are under pressure. And as Christians, we have key beliefs. And because of those key beliefs, we hold them to be true, that God created the world, that he made mankind in his image. Every person is sin, and because of that, we have separated ourselves from God. God forgives those sins through Jesus Christ on the cross. God lives in us through his spirit, and we believe that he's promised never to leave us. We believe that through Jesus, we have the hope of eternal life in heaven. And these core beliefs give us a mission. Our mission is to go to heaven and to share the good news and take as many people with us as we can. And this sense of mission dictates our priorities, both in the big things as well as just daily living. God comes first, family is second, our job is third, and then recreation, hobbies, sports, fun, that comes a distant fourth. But one of the tests of those convictions is how we stand up to the pressure of daily life. See, it's one thing to sit in a church, have your Bible open, and talk about what you believe. It's another when you're in the heat of the moment, when you're in that stress-filled test under the grind of daily living. 
I was thinking about this. It was not that long ago that smoking cigarettes was as common as having a cell phone in your pocket. It was everywhere. We went from having smoke break between class and worship, remember that? To having sermons against tobacco. We wised up. We understood. I was thinking about that because when my, my brother-in-law moved to North Carolina for his residency, he moved right in the heart of tobacco country. And he learned pretty quickly that almost every Christian in that church was a part of the tobacco farming industry. It's amazing what can happen to your convictions when your livelihood depends on it. How do your convictions hold up when the economy depends on it, when your promotion depends on it, when your relationships depend on it? That is a test. One of the things that is so admirable about Jesus was his steadfastness under pressure. And we see that so much in this last week. How None of us have experienced the kind of pressure that he was undergoing at this time. Yet he maintained his mission. He maintained his focus. He came in the world to live that perfect life, to be that lamb that John was talking about, that perfect lamb to die an atoning, sacrificial death on the cross. And nothing was going to deter him from that. So here's what I want to do. Open your Bibles to Mark 12. We're going to follow along. Most of the verses are going to be on the screen, but you might just want to follow along with me. Because Mark documents one challenge after another that I believe would have tripped a lesser person. But Jesus held on to what was important. And I think he can be a source of encouragement. So let's walk through these. The first, I want us to see the threat of physical harm. The threat of physical harm from the priests and the elders in the temple. Now, after Jesus had cleansed the temple, they questioned his authority. You remember that? We studied it. He basically said, I get my authority where John the Baptist got his. Well, they didn't want to answer that because they didn't believe John the Baptist was from God, but all the people did. So they just remained silent on that. But Jesus didn't let them off the hook. He was off the hook, but he did not run away going, whew, I dodged that one. He pressed on, even antagonizing them, by telling them a parable in Mark 12, verse 1. I won't read the whole thing, but just a quick little summary here. Man planted a vineyard, rented it to some tenants while he was on a trip. Later, he sent some servants back to collect the rent, but they refused to pay. Worse, they beat them, killed them. So the owner would be justified in that to seek their demise, at least kick them out, but he didn't do that. In fact, the only reason that he would send his son, they would respect him. What logical thinking father would do that? But that's not logic at all. That was grace. Grace is not logical. Grace is, you've heard this before, unmerited favor. It's not based on logic. Mark 12, verse 7, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be our. Now that makes no sense either. Let's kill the son, and the father's going to make us the heir to the will. But sin numbs our thinking. We see it all the time. People in rebellion do not think clearly at all. They see things like, well, I'm probably going to hell. All my friends are going to be there, so we'll have a party. You've heard that kind of thinking expressed. I know I'm married and I have kids, but I can have this affair and what they won't know won't hurt them. 
That's futile thinking. That's what the Bible calls about it. None of that makes sense. These guys said, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And that's what they did. Verse 9, Jesus asked, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Then he quoted a psalm. And then look at verse 12. The priests and the elders were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Now again, notice the impressive courage of Jesus. He knew they were out to do bodily harm. They wanted to kill him. He knew that. But instead of adjusting his message to please them, to accommodate them, he confronts them head on. He does not back away. Jesus came into the world for the purpose of dying on the cross for the sins of mankind. And nothing was going to prevent him from carrying out that mission. And Jesus knew. He was facing the threat of the most terrible, horrible torture ever invented. This scourging. Death by crucifixion. Yet he never wavered. He never compromised. He maintained his mission all the way to the end. Now, most of us will never have to face that kind of threat like this. We may have our enemies, those who don't like us, but we're not going to have the threat of our lives, more than likely. But there may be some physical difficulties that we might endure that could trigger or threaten our resolve. I'll give you a couple examples. Physical affliction. Think about physical affliction. How do you react when you are undergoing an extremely long, prolonged illness and the stress just builds? Or maybe the stress of facing a, a, a pending serious surgery. How do you deal with that? Or maybe a heart attack or a stroke that partially incapac incapacitates you and you never fully recover. Do you abandon your faith? Do you, do you blame God in anger because He didn't protect you? How do you respond in that kind of stress? Or do you hold firm in your hope in Jesus? This kind of physical affliction can be a true test of our convictions. Remember Job went through so much, even physical affliction. And Job said about God in Job 13, 15, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Could you say that? Though God slay me, I will hope in him. Well, personal discomfort is another type of physical threat that can undermine our convictions. Remember in Matthew 25, that passage that Jesus so well describes what it means to be a servant. I put it on the screen, but we won't read it all. But he talks about verse 35, feeding the hungry, visiting the sick, those in prison, giving housing and clothing. We know that teaching, don't we? This is what he will say to those who've done what he wants them to do. How many of us could say we did that this week? Any one of those. How many of us say we, could, we did that this week? We don't often do that. Why? Why? Let's be real. Because it's uncomfortable. It can be physically uncomfortable, unpleasant. Now, we can easily give a $20 bill to a panhandler on the side of the road. Or maybe even make a little care package and give that to them. And that can be good. But if you truly minister to the homeless, when you come to know their name, more often than not, that's challenging. That can be uncomfortable. They often smell. If not body odor, it's stale cigarettes. 
even urine-soaked clothing, it's not easy. If you take a mission trip to a third world country, it's physically challenging. Just drinking the water and eating the food is a risk. The heat can be intense. The days are long. Your, your sleep is compromised. Some of you never visit a nurse, nursing home because you just say, I can't do it. I just can't do it. Why can't you do it? It's uncomfortable for you. And we don't like to be uncomfortable. How many of us have ever been to visit those in prison? That's uncomfortable. I've been through several prisons in my life, but my most uncomfortable moment in visiting a prison was years ago in the mid-90s. Back in the 90s, you might remember, HIV AIDS was huge. It was such a threat, such a, 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 an issue, that this particular prison had its own ward and if you recall, at that time, it was so associated with social and, and godless lifestyle. I was asked to go and speak to those people in that unit. I had a decision to make. Would I touch them? Would I shake their hand? What if they wanted to hug me? See, being in physically challenging settings can deepen our love and appreciation for Jesus because this is who Jesus was. Jesus sought after and found himself. He looked for the lepers, the unclean, the outcasts, the ones who were hurt, the ones who had lost hope. And he was right there in the middle of them. Physical affliction, personal discomfort that we experience are nothing compared to what Jesus went through especially this last week, and yet he maintained his mission. And so can we. Well, number two, I want us to see the threat of losing popularity. Jesus endured the threat of losing popularity with the Pharisees. Look there in Mark chapter 12, and we're going to do a quick survey here. Verse 13, they sent him to some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. That says it well. It was that, that relentless badgering. They were taking notes, trying to just catch him saying the wrong thing in some way to take him down. Verse 14, And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by anyone's appearance. You truly teach the way of God. Anyone smell the false flattery here? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, that's a clever question to ask. Because if Jesus said, yes, pay the taxes, then he would upset the Jews because they, they hated the Romans occupying them. And they hated to pay them any penny at all. And so if Jesus says, yes, you've got to pay them taxes, well, they're not going to like that. But if Jesus said, no, don't pay the taxes, Jesus could be arrested for insurrection. Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Get what he's asking there? Whose monetary system are you using? Whose roads are you riding on? The infrastructure that you're benefiting from? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. 
I want you to see that Jesus did not just say what the people wanted to hear. The Jews wanted him to say, don't pay taxes to Caesar. He shouldn't be here. We shouldn't have to do this. But Jesus spoke the truth, even if it cost him a decline in those who would follow him. The threat of losing popularity can truly be a test of our convictions. Look at the screen, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 3 and 4. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. So what about you? When you're at work, and someone comments about abortion saying, I just don't understand why the government is getting into our business. A woman's body is her business. And everybody else seems to chime in in an agreement. Do you speak up for the truth? Do you stand up for your convictions and say, I believe there's two bodies we should be concerned about here? Or the travel team takes your family away for the weekend again and again. You've already sacrificed a great deal of money and time. You know what it's costing you. Will you also sacrifice your convictions or do you have the courage to say as for me and my house we will serve the Lord and make a way to worship him model to your children what it means to put God first teenagers when your friends are texting about their plans for the weekend and somebody suggests a movie that you know your parents would not let you go to and everybody's going how are you going to respond to that because if you go, you know you're going to have to lie and deceive your parents. Do you have the courage to stand up for your convictions to honor your mom and dad and maybe suggest another movie or if need be, bow out and not go? Tommy Bell was a lawyer, a public speaker, but also an NFL referee. But first, he was a Christian. He told about his rookie year in the league, and he made a call that irritated the coach. The coach said, if you keep making calls like that, you're not going to last long in this league. And Tommy turned around and said to him, if I cannot make calls like that, I don't want to last long in this league. That's the kind of courage and conviction that a Christian needs in any environment to say, I want to do the right thing. I want to stand up for truth, even if others do not agree. And Jesus had that kind of conviction. He told the truth even about paying taxes even though not all wanted to hear it. Well, third, look at this next one, the threat of intellectual ridicule. We might need this today as much as ever. He was facing the threat of intellectual ridicule from the Sadducees. Mark 12, 18 says, The Sadducees came to him who say there's no resurrection. Remember the Sadducees? That's a group of the Jews. They considered themselves the, the liberal sect. They were the intellectuals. The Pharisees, they were the conservatives. But the Sadducees, they were the, uh, the intellectuals. They only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. The rest of the, the Old Testament, they did not believe to be inspired by God. And so in these first five books, they so, saw no indication of life after death. So they did not believe in the resurrection at all. And they would ridicule the Pharisees because the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. But these intellectual Sadducees, they just thought it was all just silly. So they brought to Jesus this hypothetical situation. And they knew this would tie the Pharisees in knots. 
So how would Jesus respond? Look at verse 18, continuing. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, you know they have to be giggling over the sidelines. Just like, okay, this is a good one. This is going to be great. Kind of like the reporter who's saying, now what color were those Martians you saw? You know, how many reindeer were on the roof? You know, they just can't contain themselves. Verse 20, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. The third likewise, and, and the seven left no offspring. I would not want to be that seventh brother. I used to think this is kind of exaggerating until Sia told me about her aunt, Ludie, who had outlived three husbands. Y'all, their names all started with the letter O, Onus, Ott, and Oliver, and they all died. If I was Oliver, I'd be thinking, check my food, you know, check my orange juice, give it to the dog, see if he makes it. Verse 22, last of all, the woman also died. Can you imagine the snickering now? In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus gives the most incredible answer and just drives down right and just right toward their prideful intellect. Look at verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when we rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Now, when you read through this, there may be some when you read through this, because of your marriage, you're thinking, this is good news. So you can kind of take it for what it's worth. You're not going to be married in heaven. You'll stay in the marriage to death to us part, but then no more. Kind of like the wife who went to, with her good friend to report her husband missing. The policeman asked for a description of her husband. She said, well, he's six foot, 190 pounds, athletic build, dark eyes, wavy hair, soft-spoken, kind with the children. Her friend said, Mary, that's not your husband. He's short, fat, bald, and he's mean to the kids. And she said, I know, but who wants him back? <laughs> now, the good news for those who are happily married is that heaven is going to be even better than anything on earth. I really don't understand what all this means, but I trust God that it's going to be good. And I know it will, and you can too. Jesus says here, you don't know what you're talking about because in heaven there's no marriage. And then notice, he rips them to shreds using the very scriptures that they think they know so well. Look at verse 26. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. They knew well the story of the burning bush, how God identified himself as I, to Moses as, I am the God of Abraham, not I was the God of Abraham. Abraham still exists. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You are quite wrong. That's what he says to these Sadducees. See, one of the challenges that you may face today could be the intellectuals in your field. 
not the public opinion or popularity from the crowds, but those in your area of your specialty. The college professor is subject to ridicule from other educators if he admits that he believes in the Genesis account of creation. A surgeon may endure scoffing from other doctors if he prays with his patients or, or says anything that's faith-affirming as they're about to go in for that operation. A lawyer who holds a Christian worldview may find herself in a whole different universe than her peers. Even well-educated preachers or theologians are not without critics when they hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. Karl Barth, you've heard his name before, incredible theologian, described as one of the greatest thinkers within the history of the Christian tradition. Barth was the, one of the intellectual leaders of the Protestant group that resisted the Third Reich. This is who he was. This was his courage. He was a scholar. Everybody revered him. He was asked, what is the deepest thought you've ever had? He said, my deepest thought is this. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. That takes humility. That also takes maintaining your conviction in the face of intellectual pressure. I want you to listen to this. We have never known more than we know right now. But we have never been in deeper trouble. Think about the knowledge that we have in that little bitty device that you've got in your pocket. We have never known more right now. Yet with all that accumulated knowledge of the ages, with all that we know, all we have is more sophisticated means to take one another down. And we do it again and again. George Bernard Shaw said this, I put it on the screen. Now that we've learned to fly in the air like birds, swim under the water like fish, we like one thing, to learn to live on earth as human beings. If you cannot understand today that your intellect is not going to solve your problem, then you are not thinking very deeply. Bob Richards was talking to a group about Christ when he said this, some of you are 18 inches away from the kingdom of God. That's the distance between your head and your heart. If you're still looking for an intellectual solution, if you're still trying to impress the knowledgeable people in your field, you're looking in the wrong direction. It's not that we need more knowledge. We need to humbly come before the wisdom and the power of God to accept and believe in the simple good news of Jesus. If there's ever a time that we do not need to buckle under the intellectual pressures of our day, it's now. One more. I want you to see the lure of doctrinal accommodation. And this is from a scribe, Mark 12, 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them dispute with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, Ask of Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, I think it's worth noting the shift here. This man was not trying to trap Jesus. The others were, and it's mentioned there. He's impressed with Jesus' answers and seems to be asking Jesus a sincere question. Verse 29, Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said he is one, and there is no other besides him. 
And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Great answer. But notice how Jesus responds to this man. Notice the wording here, verse 34. And when Jesus saw the way he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Notice Jesus did not say, I like how you answered all their questions. Or you like how I, answer, how I answered your question. You agree with me. And because you agree with me, then you've got what it takes. You're in the kingdom. He doesn't say that. He says you're not far from the kingdom. To be in the kingdom... This scribe who knew so well the law is much more than right answers. He had to surrender his heart to Jesus as Lord. He had to surrender his pride and ego. He had to repent of his sins and trust in the atoning death of Jesus on the cross. Not his own knowledge, not his own morality. He had to be born again. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus? John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus did not accommodate his teaching, his doctrine, because somebody was impressive. He was true to his mission. In John 14, 6, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this may not be a point of weakness for you, but I'll just confess to you, every time I stand before you, there's a huge sense that I should not be here. Because when I stand before you, I know that there are some of you who are much more intelligent than I am, much more educated than I am. You have more money financially. You're much further ahead than me. You have more talent. You have more influence. You're better moral people than I am. To be blunt, my livelihood is dependent upon you. It can be so tempting to say, oh, you're good. It's okay. But I have to answer to God. And I have to tell you the truth. There are some of you who are not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far from the kingdom of God. If you do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if you've never confessed your faith and repented of your sins, if you've never been baptized into Christ, you are not in. That's what the Bible teaches us. No matter how good you are, no matter how long you've been attending worship or a part of this church or your family, how long they've been part of a church, it doesn't matter. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of work so that no one can boast. You don't get into kingdom by having the right answers. You don't get into kingdom by doing good. It's not good people who are saved. It is forgiven people who are saved. I hope you were listening to Rush's prayer. Is that what, what he was asking, saying to God? Jack Cottrell wrote a book called Being Good Enough Isn't Good Enough. And there's some who still don't get it. You've been in church all your life and you still don't get it. One man shared about a recurring nightmare where he was standing before judgment and of all people before him in line was Mother Teresa. 
And he heard God telling Mother Teresa, you didn't do enough. And he thought, if she didn't do enough, what does that mean for the rest of us? He got it wrong. You can never do enough. Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. The only way we can be in the kingdom, as Jesus said, is to come as a child. Completely trusting God. And he tells us to believe and to trust, to repent, and to be baptized. When we do that, then we've got a mission. Because now we're going to heaven. And we'll take as many people as with us as we can. That's who we are. That's the way we live. And that sense of mission then dictates the way we live our lives. God comes first. And then our family. And then our job. And then any kind of recreation, fun, sports, hobbies, whatever. This doesn't necessarily just come with age. In fact, let me share, and I'll close with this, a letter written by a young soldier to his wife. And I want you to listen to the faith expressed in these words. They'd been married for about a year when he was facing war. In fact, they were both facing an extreme test. What would this mean? The date was one day before the war started. I'll read just an excerpt. I'm hopeful that if war comes, you will hear from me and rest easy. But if not, my love, take comfort in Jesus' promises. Do not let your heart be troubled. Be filled with His peace. As you realize life is so short for us, eternity awaits and a crown Jesus will wipe away our tears and we will know only love, joy, and peace forever. I do feel a sense of sadness at the thought of being separated, but I know it will only be for a little while and then both of us will experience the greatest joy imaginable and will live with God forever. That is holding on to your convictions in the face of a threat. Maybe his peers would ridicule him. Maybe the intellectuals would scoff. But I believe Jesus would look over his shoulder and say, you are in the kingdom. He understood what it meant. Are you just 18 inches from the kingdom? Would Jesus look to you and say, you're not far Today, if there's something you've not done, have you yet confessed that you believe in Jesus to others? Repented of your sins? Had them washed away in, in baptism? We always have the water ready. We're going to sing a song to encourage you. Do that today. So that Jesus doesn't say to you, you're not far. He says you're in. Or if we can pray for you in any way, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage